Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Purpose as a word forces you to think long-term. It's a long-term question. Like if you ask them, what's your purpose or what's my company's purpose? It inherently forces you to think long-term. And when you think long-term, you have to think of multiplicity of stakeholders, including shareholders. Because when you're thinking long-term, you have to think about employees. You have to think about customers. You have to think about community. You might even think about the planet. But the logical arc to get from purpose to any of this is through this idea of long-term thinking. That, you know, how do we get leaders to imagine their businesses in a long-term perspective? And so this getting caught in this Am I an idealist solving social problems or am I a pragmatist trying to optimize for shareholders or am I trying to navigate through this complex multiplicity of people who expect something from me in the long term and I have to divvy up the resources and profit is part of that story. I'll just share with you a short quote from Peter Drucker who once said, profit for a company is like oxygen for a person. If you don't have enough of it, you're out of the game. But if you think your life is about breathing, you're really missing something. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ranjay, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure to be here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called Deep Purpose, The Heart and Soul of High-Performance Companies, all of which we will get into. Uh, but I actually want to start by talking about something else. And in the dedication of the book, you dedicated the book to your mother, who you said was one of the greatest Deep Purpose leaders, you know, and your wife. and. I'm curious, what is one of the most important things that you learned from your mother that have influenced and shaped who you've become uh, and what you've ended up doing with both your life and your career? Well, you know, I think uh, one of the things I learned from my mother, which comes from a conversation I had with her when I was young, I was a teenager working in her business. She used to work crazy hours. And I remember telling my mother one day, I was giving her a lecture about work-life balance. <laughs> and I was like, mom, you need to like... But it was really was giving her a lecture to say, give me a break and let me not have to work so hard. And I remember her putting her fork down and, uh, you know, saying, son, my wish for you is that you never have to work a day in your life. And I thought she was about to tell me about my trust because she was very successful businesswoman by then. I'm like, oh, yes, mom, tell me more, tell me more. And she immediately realized where my brain was going and said, no, that's not what I'm saying. She says, what a horrible phrase, work-life balance. There can be work-leisure balance. There can be work-family balance. But work in opposition to life? She said, your work needs to be an extension of what you do in your life. And it's part and parcel. It's something you should feel proud of, something you should feel deeply connected to, something that gives you meaning. And, and that has been kind of the learning for me was, to, you know, that, that purpose, you know, you, you find your purpose when you're doing something that has coherence in your life. So your work is not a job and then you live your life 
on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or either Saturday, Sunday, and in the evenings after 5 p.m. And and I think that was a big gift for me. So that's so, sort of unusually self-aware for an Indian parent. Uh, you know, that doesn't sound at all. Like, I can't imagine having that kind of conversation with my dad. They wouldn't even, like, my dad or mom would never be able to put sort of the notion of, you know, how you're going to find your way in the world into those types of words. And I can't imagine, like, from what I know about most Indian, I can't imagine that conversation. Like, why is it that your mom was that way? Like, what made her that self-aware to pass on that kind of wisdom to you? Well, you know, she was different, I have to admit. You know, she, you know, she, in 1968, she started doing a master's degree in anthropology at Vanderbilt University. It was a program for school teachers from all over the world. They met once every year and three months in the summer in Athens, Greece. And, you know, then after that, you know, she got this idea that she, her master's thesis was about tribal Indian women who made their own clothing using hand-printed fabrics with vegetable dyes. And then she got this idea to start a fashion business, to go to Paris in 1972 and convince some fashion houses in France to buy her designs. So, you know, hers was not a conventional pathway. In India, this is sitting in New Delhi, India in 1972. Um, you know, so she, that was, that, you know, she was different. She was very different. Um, and I, in some ways, I think ahead of her time. Um, yeah, because I'm thinking of that time, and not only is that very progressive for an Indian person in that generation at that time, but extremely progressive for an Indian woman to not only pursue a path like that, but to have that narrative. Do you think that is the byproduct of the way that she was raised? Like, where was she just like a rebel in her family? Like, why is it that she was that way? And how is it that she didn't succumb to the sort of social programming that surrounded her? Because that is so, like, such a stark contrast to how most Indians are raised. Even Indians born and raised, born, uh, raised in America, like my generation. It's only now I'm starting to see, like, my friends are having kids. That is now starting to change a little bit. Yeah. So it's hard to kind of stereotype all Indians. But I would just sure. say that, yes, she was definitely... Um, um, a rebel, but her parents were unusual. Her father, her father was an engineer, a civil engineer, and he worked for, uh, you know, he'd been a civil engineer. And my grandmother had a bachelor's degree in English literature from at that time, the only university that admitted women, uh, Banaras Hindu University. So, you know, she had very, I would say, West looking, Western looking parents mm -hmm. who I think gave her the freedom um, but having said that, it wasn't like her other sisters were as nonconformist as she was. So, you know, I think there was something in her that also made her kind of really run uh, her way or march to her own drummer, if I may say. Yeah. And, um, but you know, I think is my learning in that process was that if I look and this became part of my research stream afterwards, I did a study looking at 65 successful entrepreneurs who had really built businesses and grown them dramatically. And, and I was interested to see how they got, what did they, what animated them, how they got the idea, how they then implemented the idea. And what I came to realize was that they all began not just with an idea. You need an idea. You need a business plan. You need an idea. But they also had an idea of something they wanted to have an impact. And I don't mean social impact. It could be economic impact. It was very impact-centric. It wasn't, for some, a few, it's financially driven. I want to make money and I want to be rich and I want to do this. But a lot of them were driven by, I want to change the way this market works. I want to transform the way these customers experience things. I want to completely revolutionize how this is done. So they measure themselves around impact. And less about, you know, like, I have an idea, I know how to make money, I have customers who are willing to buy this. It was this kind of animating ideal. And that was, I think, a precursor to my entry into studying purpose, even. Because it was this realization that all these venture founders, like my own mother, they began with this kind of animating ideal. 
of how they wanted to have an impact. Well, the funny thing is, so you've had this nonconformist mother and uh, at the same time, like I, I read about you, you had a degree from MIT, you teach at Harvard, you're as like my friend likes to joke about my sister, any Indian parents dream come true, like when we look at credentials. So I'm curious, were you encouraged to pursue all these kinds of things? Because I'm sure if I told my parents Harvard, MIT, they'd be like, hell yeah, that's amazing. Like, it's kind of funny because I remember when I got my book deal, I, I needed something to tell my dad. I was like, I asked my editor, I was like, how many people get a book deal? She's like, what are the odds of me getting here? She's like one in 5,000. And I wanted to go back. And I was like, you know, it's harder to do this than it is to get into medical school, right? <laughs> so look, Look, first of all, I have to say, I feel very lucky and privileged to be where I am. Um, and, um, and, you know, but in, in my instance also, you know, I, you know, what may look like a linear path to you was actually a non-linear path. Um, I came to MIT to do my master's with a plan to go back to Microsoft where I was working. It was the eighties and they had just gone public and it was a very, uh, desirable place to be for a newly public company. You know, I was one of the, uh, I would been there when there was less than a thousand people. And, uh, and then, you know, I would, I did my, at that time, Sloan required you to do a master's thesis because they might, they didn't give an MBA, they gave an MS. And so as I wrote my thesis, I thought, I love research. I always love research. And my mother had always wanted to be a re academic herself. She was this, that was the kind of the other side of her. So when I told her I was thinking about academia and going to drop out of Microsoft, she was like, yeah, go for it. So it may look like not that deviant to you, but at that time among my MBA class, it was kind of like a radical thought that I was going to a PhD. Um, even though you might say, well, you were going to Harvard to do a PhD. Right. Um, so <laughs> may not look that radical to you, but it was pretty radical at that time uh, with my uh, classmates. Um, so I think is that, you know, I, I think is, um, what I've loved about academia is it allows you to really explore ideas. And at the same time that you live in the world of ideas in business school academia, you're also able to then sh communicate and share those ideas so you can actually shape the way others look at their business. And you're able to have an impact because business leaders are a force multiplier on the world. And if you can help them think slightly differently about what they do, I think it has a, it has a massive impact. And so business school academia is distinctive in some ways because it connects theory with practice. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. It's funny because I, I come from a family full of academics. I mean, my dad's a professor. My All my mom's uh, uncles were professors. Her dad was the dean of a university in Delhi. And I had this business school professor who told me, she's like, Shreen, you'd be an amazing teacher. She's like, you'd be a horrible professor. She's like, you have serious issues with authority. You, you know, you piss off the administration constantly and you're doing that while you're a student. <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough. But speaking of academia, I, as I told you, was not going to let you get out of this conversation without talking about education and the future of it. You're at arguably the most prestigious university in the world. Um, and I wonder when you think about the future of education, uh, two, like one, if you were tasked with redesigning it from the ground up, let's say that they made you the head of education policy, uh, what would you change? What do you think works? And how is it out of alignment with where we're currently headed, do you think? Well, let me just focus on the pedagogy itself first, right? Um, what's happened in the pedagogy itself was there was a time when education in America was rooted in the liberal arts education experience, right? Even the Ivy Leagues had this kind of liberal arts orientation where it was a place for self-discovery. It was a place to first figure out where, how you saw yourself in this world. And then based on that, you figured out what you wanted to study and through that, you discovered also what kind of vocation you wanted to pursue. Right? So it began from a place of like, go figure out, you know, what animates you, what excites you, what you want to be. And in some ways, what has happened over the decades is it's gotten flipped. Where it's everything is vocational. You're pre-something. I'm pre-engineering. I'm pre-med. I'm pre-this. I'm pre-that. So that space, safe space for exploration, where you may be trying to see what is that that I really want to do is kind of lost. And, and I think it's been crowded out by earlier and earlier. You apply to now in many schools, universities, you apply to a pre-professional program. You apply into a, into a school. And, and, and so I think that's the first piece of the puzzle. There has to be um, you know, a way to kind of reconcile the need for getting people to be professionally trained before they graduate, which I understand the job market is requiring that. 
you need to come in and add value from the get-go, to also creating this space for exploration. So that's my first observation. My second observation is that pedagogically, you know, if you go back centuries, education always was tied to apprenticeship. It wasn't about scholarly knowledge that you kept in your head and then one day when you needed it, it suddenly was accessible to you. That, And you see some schools that have really run with this idea. If you look at Northeastern with this co-op program, for instance, trying to help people go to school while also trying to see, um, you know, uh, what is the way to do this. So I think is that, that I think, is another piece of the puzzle that I think is like HBS, we now have a field program, you know, where students can work on a company problem. And and so while you're going to school, you actually engage with the world of practice. And and I think this idea that we can keep people in school, you learn a lot of stuff, and guess what? It's all accessible to you whenever you need it. Um, I think that is also another kind of, a, I would say, an artificial construct. Um, and I think that uh, is is something that I think we have to, um, uh, you know, think about. And I and I think, um, you know, I find that to be another problem over here. The other problem I think we are all kind of grappling with is. Education was always kind of the unlock into opportunity in America. But it also relied on a way to make that opportunity accessible for those for whom it would may not otherwise have been accessible. And this has become a central point of debate and contention today. That how do we think about access and affordability? Um, and I think this is where I think we as a society need to, I'm not in a position to say what is right or wrong, but we as a society need to really grapple with this question. I think in a, in a, you know, I would say in a very holistic and thoughtful way, because education has always provided the unlock into opportunity for those for whom it was otherwise not easily available. And I speak for myself. I mean, I come to America as a as a foreigner, an immigrant, and education was my pathway into America, as I'm sure it was for your parents, probably. Yeah. Right? You come here for higher education. So I think there's a lot of issues. Affordability is another one, right? I mean, how can educational cost be growing twice as fast as inflation? I mean, it's crazy. I forget the exact numbers, but it's like crazy. So there's a lot of issues pedagogically, economically, accessibility-wise, that I think we, we're at an infection point. Yeah. And I think we need to think about hard about that. Well, uh, I want to come back to the, the pedagogical stuff, but I want to bring back a clip from a conversation I had with Scott Galloway uh, as it relates to affordability. And you and I were talking about access and the fact that it opens doors when you come from one of these schools. Take a listen. Despite the fact that the number of people going to college has increased dramatically, uh, the number of seats that have been offered by the top universities has stayed flat. So Stanford's applications have tripled in the last 30 years, but the number of seats that they've increased has, has they haven't increased their freshman class by anything substantial because we as academics, and I include myself in this, have become drunk with the notion of exclusivity. And that is we no longer see ourselves as public servants. We are see ourselves as luxury brands. And every fall, the head of admissions and the deans brag about how impossible it is to get in to the college. And you can't be at a party without someone joking that they could never get into their alma mater today. But that's a bad thing because on a risk-adjusted basis, it's likely that your children will be somewhere in your weight class. So a couple of things come to mind for me for that. Uh, when you mentioned that comment about not being able to get into your alma mater, my sister and I make that comment all the time when we look at how hard it is to get into Berkeley today versus when we applied. But that idea of uh, educational institutions becoming luxury brands, I think, is is pretty apt. And at the same time, as you know, we alluded to before we hit record, you and I can't argue against the fact that having Harvard on your resume opens doors that are not open to other people. 
So look, I think there's a, I, I love what Scott does and I appreciate what his point is, but I think there's a conundrum here. High quality education doesn't scale very easily. So it may sound really easy. Look, the demand has gone up, so increase the supply. You know, Harvard Business School already has like class of 950 in 11 sections, right? So you might say, hey, come on, add another five sections or 10 sections. You know, you have such a long list of people applying. Just double the class and you'll earn more tuition. You can even discount it now. This economy is a scale. And it just doesn't work so easily. Yeah. And now, of course, you might say, but technology, maybe we can have online courses. Um, and so that's the first piece of the puzzle that, you know, yes, demand. And now what is happening is American educational system is feeding, is meeting not just domestic demand, but also global demand. Everybody wants to come and study here. So, yes, we have demand, which then creates more competition, which makes it less accessible which makes it like, you know, really, really hard. Um, and, and again, a question we have to think about, but I think the answer can't just be, hey, add more people. You know, um, I don't think that would work. Does that make sense? I think it's, yeah, we need I, to think very carefully about that. Yeah, I don't think that, uh, in my mind, I don't think that, um, like I think that he was making a point with this notion of exclusivity. I, I I agree. I don't think that you could scale without losing quality. Um, but to go back to the pedagogical pedagogical piece, like one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and and you kind of alluded to this, was this space for exploration. And David Epstein, when he wrote his book Range, we had him here as a guest, and he said, you know, he said to make long term decisions at that point in your life is actually a really bad idea because you're making decisions on behalf of a person that you don't know um, and that you haven't discovered. And and I, I, you know, I will have people who come to me sometimes. I, uh, one of my parents' friends' sons is a freshman at Berkeley. And the amount of questions this kid would ask me, I'm like, dude, you have to go there and find out. I don't know the answers to any of this stuff. Um, because I think that we try to make these enormous life decisions with very limited data points. It would be like, meeting somebody for five minutes and saying, okay, yeah, I think I'm ready to get married to them. Bad example for two Indians speaking, I realize. <laughs> but, but you get the point. Look, um, your point is well taken. And I think this is what I was saying earlier, that whole kind of the pursuit of exploration that created a safe space for exploring, trying, failing, learning. And some schools are playing with this, right? They're, they'll have first year or first semester, or take any classes, no grades. Right? You don't declare your major till the end of your sophomore year. So there's an effort to build some flex into the system. But the labor market more broadly into which we are now placed is increasingly demanding kids who are very focused. You know what we might call depth over breadth. Uh, the pointy headed, you know, single dimensional versus I bring breadth. Uh, and I bring that breadth in some ways and that uh, makes me, enriches me and allows me to be more creative and so on and so forth. I think this is, this is problem. I think that, you know, we have to, um, you know, kind of understand what we need to do. Um, well, I think that that makes a, a perfect segue into talking about the book itself, because I mean, in a lot of ways, we're talking about purpose as it, you know, at, at that sort of stage in life. So you early on in the book say that the most compelling purpose statements among the hundreds I've reviewed have two basic and interrelated features. First, they delineate an ambitious longer term goal for the company. Second, they give this goal an idealistic cast, committing the firm to fulfillment of broader social studies. And you make this distinction between convenient purpose and deep purpose as well, which I want to get into. But I think so often this to me is one of those things that is so difficult to articulate, uh, no matter how many books we read on it. Like, you know, you go to, I think people in a lot, it takes us back to that discovery piece, right? Where I think people read a book like Simon Sinek's Start With Why and they think, okay, I'll just do the exercises and I'll know what my purpose in life is. And as I found out from having Simon Sinek tell me my why, that actually took 10 years to connect the dots. Yeah. 
Well, look, you know, the, the thing to ask ourselves, first of all, the idea of purpose, I'm glad you brought up Simon Sinek. You know, Simon did a great job in laying out personal purpose. That all of us should start with the why, right? Why am I here? And that why is a kind of a profound first principle, ground zero question that all of us should be asking ourselves. The question then becomes that can you apply to a company? Can it be an organization having a purpose? I mean, how can you do something that is a why question for me individually? How does it apply to an organization? And in classic organizational theory, you know, we always talked about the what and the how. What are you going to do? How are you going to get it done? So we had the what, which was the strategy, the vision, the tactics. What are you going to do? Then there was the how question. How are you going to build your organization, your culture, your org design, the people and all that stuff? How are you going to get it done? So it was the what and the how question. Why was never part of kind of the repertoire of what anybody thought about in an organizational context? And I think increasingly there's a realization that the why question actually helps you answer the what and the how question. And I learned this from Satya Nadella, actually. I, I had a chance to interview Satya for some research I was doing for my book. And I asked Satya, tell me about like your the Microsoft turnaround. And he said, look, we needed to fix our strategy, the what we're going to do. And we had to fix our organization to implement that strategy, the how we're going to do it. But what we were missing was the why. And I said, oh, really? I didn't buy it. I honestly, I thought like, I don't buy this. But he, he was adamant. He said, Rajiv, without the why, we wouldn't have been able to really think about our strategy clearly. And once we got, and once we had the why figured out, we got to gain alignment among everybody. So he says, you have to think about purpose as an unlock into strategy and implementation. And then he also made clear, don't fix on a, fixate on a mission statement. Purpose is not just a purpose statement. And I needed to get my head around that because I was so fixated on mission statements thinking, who reads mission statements? Really? Give me a break. Nobody reads mission statements. It's just kind of there, right? So it's like, why would I want to waste my time? And, and I think this is the piece of the puzzle that I've learned that, you know, it's a little more complicated. And once you have a purpose for an organization, then how do you make it real for the people who work there? And so it doesn't become some artifact that is on the wall. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So make this distinction for me between uh, deep purpose and convenient purpose. Like what is the difference between the two? So, you know, it's... um. I, in fact, my publishers were telling me that I should have a book with a one word title, you know, purpose. <laughs> so I couldn't, you know, because I found so many companies practicing what I was calling superficial or convenient purpose, meaning they'd kind of put it out there as a slogan. You know, it was kind of just like a checkbox slogan. It was posturing. Some people have called it virtuous side hustles, purpose posturing. It was a pretend I'm a goody goody person. And it plays into the cynics. It really plays into the cynicism in the world we are in today. Say, oh, look at these companies. They're yet again trying to do this purpose posturing, pretending to be good, but they're not. And so this, this has been kind of a, you know, and that's why I had to describe kind of, I had to write a whole section on convenient purpose and different types of convenient purpose. Because if you want to really get the benefits of purpose, so if you look at, for instance, Pepsi, what did Indra Nui call it? She called it performance with purpose. That purpose drives success. But if you want to get those benefits, you have to go deep with purpose. Superficial purpose is not going to get you there. That was the big aha Well, I think that one of the other things I, I really appreciate, this might be my favorite term in the entire book, is what you call practical idealism. Because I think, to your point, you know, it can be caught up in slogans like people often are idealistic. I see this a lot with, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs or even people who want to do things like I do, like content creators, where they are very idealistic. Like, stupid example, somebody comes to me, it's like, oh, I want to sell a million copies of a book. I'm like, do you have any audience? Do you have any credibility at this? Like, have you done any of this work? And, you know, I was like, well, then no, I can't help you do this at all. Um, but I, I appreciate this idea of practical idealism. Can you explain that and how it ties into purpose? So let me start with a very innocent mistake some good wishing people made. They introduced the phrase purpose and profit. Now that is a disaster. Because and implies purpose is logically separate from profit. It's not a precursor. It's an additive to profit. So it's basically by logical conclusion, purpose equals non-profit. And so suddenly purpose became this social agenda. It was about the, you know, focusing on social goals. It became ESG. It got embraced by the anti-capitalists and suddenly now you're in a political nightmare saying purpose is a woke conspiracy. You know, it's this, it's that and this. I mean, who doesn't need to have a purpose? Why am I here on this planet? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with having an intention that why we are here? And I think this caused a lot of confusion in people's minds. I think the other piece people got confused about is that Purpose as a word forces you to think long term. 
it's a long-term question. Like if you ask them, what's your purpose or what's my company's purpose, it inherently forces you to think long. And when you think long-term, you have to think of multiplicity of stakeholders, including shareholders. Because when you're thinking long-term, you have to think about employees, you have to think about customers, you have to think about community, you might even think about the planet. But the, the logical arc to get from purpose to any of this is through this idea of long-term thinking. That, you know, how do we get leaders to imagine their businesses in a long-term perspective? And that's, and so this getting caught in this, am I an idealist solving social problems? Or am I a pragmatist trying to optimize for shareholders? Or am I trying to navigate through this complex multiplicity of people who expect something from me in the long term? And I have to divvy up the resources and profit is part of that story. I'll just share with you a short quote from Peter Drucker, who once said, profit for a company is like oxygen for a person. If you don't have enough of it, you're out of the game. But if you think your life is about breathing, you're really missing something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I appreciate the long-term idea because I remember uh, when Y Combinator made its curriculum available via, via podcast, uh, I went through the whole thing. It's something I go back to every quarter or so to, to listen to it. Sam Altman, one of the things I think is either in the very last lecture or second to last lecture, he tells people that they're, they're a founder's greatest competitive advantage is a long-term view because he said a lot of people come in thinking I'm going to do this thing for three or four years. I'm going to then after that sit on the beach counting my cash or be a venture capitalist or some you know sort of delusional dream. So look, um, the I the you know in. In Eastern, let me take Indian traditions, since both of you and I are Indian, you know, there is a word in, in Sanskrit called dharma. And dharma is not karma, for those who confuse that with the two. Dharma is really loosely, it's hard to translate into English, but it's really around duty, purpose, intent. And the wise person is he or she who is able to operate from a place of that intention. Just the way a human being, if they have clarity of intention, they don't, are not confused about the way they make decisions. They understand how to make trade-offs. They know how to navigate through the world, understanding the complexity and confusion that they have to deal with and are able to work their way through that. I think businesses today are in the same boat. They're being pulled in so many directions. They're being asked to weigh in on social issues, on environmental issues. They're being asked to weigh in on shareholder issues. They're being asked to weigh in on employee issues. And so in this complex situation, having some clarity of a North Star or anchor or a direction can help you navigate and make those trade-offs and say, it doesn't give you the answer to the trade-offs, but it gives you a rudimentary framework even to think about it. And it gets everybody aligned around those trade-offs. So it's, that's the situation I think we have to think about. So um, I think that is why I think this is such an important idea today. Leaders are being pulled in so many directions. And having some clarity of purpose, if I may say, is a wonderful tool to be practically idealistic um, because when you're doing that, purpose involves a sense of goals and ambitions, right? It, but it also involves duties and responsibilities. And it allows you to think through both simultaneously. That, I think, is the core idea of purpose. Well, you talk about um, sort of what you call four purpose levers, which are directional, relational, reputational, and motivational. Can you explain those and expand on those? Yeah. So, you see, part of what happened was, um, you know, um, uh, is the following. Is there's still a lot of skepticism that purpose is just a distraction. People who think of purpose as ESG say this is a distraction. The economist even calls it anti-democratic, that it's getting unelected officials to use other people's money and redistribute it across social projects 
And that's not their business. That's the job of elected government officials. So you get this kind of radical pull out there. But I think at the same time, I think what, so the question then was, is purpose good for business? Financially good for business even. And, and that, so I'm now in the midst of a large sample statistical study where we're going to try to see if there's even a correlation between purpose and financial returns and performance on other dimensions. But in the interim, I started to ask business leaders, you know, like, is it good for your business? Does purpose actually, anecdotally, you know, I'm asking you anecdotally, does it help your business? Uh, how? That was the question that I was asking. So in answer to that question, so, you know, is where I got these, these four dimensions you're talking about. The first thing I heard from like one gentleman I interviewed was, it was Thomas Toon Anderson of Orsted, who said, I pity those who think of purpose coming at the expense of performance. Or if you take Larry Fink, he said, purpose unifies management, employees, and communities. It drives ethical behavior and creates an essential check on actions that go against the best interest of stakeholders. Purpose guides culture, provides a framework for consistent decision-making, and ultimately helps sustain long-term financial returns. So there was all these, I would say, assertions, and I was just trying to put some structure to these assertions. So the first one was direction. That purpose helps leaders discover directional clarity. It doesn't tell them exactly where we're going, but at least broadly where we're going. So they're able to think about the trade-offs and choices they have to make and creates alignment. So that was the first. The second was motivational. And motivational was really about what we find is that increasingly employees, especially younger ones, you know, millennials tend to find that you know, they want to work in a place where they feel connected to what the organization is about. That, that sense of pride, that sense of identity, and how you, that, that is a draw for some talent and, and some top talent. So that was another piece of the puzzle. The third, you know, you was, 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 there was reputational where customers seem to care about companies. And the last was relational where suppliers and ecosystem partners seem to care about it. And that was based on this idea. If a company is really deep with purpose, not just superficial, that, you know, we can trust them more. So there was an increasing sense of trust and connection that then leads customers to want to buy more and lead suppliers and ecosystem partners to be willing to collaborate more, saying, I can trust these people. So I was simply trying to put some structure to the various pathways through which companies, organizations of all sorts can actually benefit from having a purpose. That was the core thesis of the section that you're asking me about. Well, let's talk about this idea of communicating purpose because you and I, I mean, previously just talked about this idea of, you know, not being just fancy slogans. And when you say in communicating the purpose, deep purpose leaders go beyond slogans and rallying cries, telling a grand foundational story about the company that lends depth, meaning, and even poetry to the enterprise. What does doing this look like in practice? So look, the thing with purpose is, you know, if it's a management program or a strategy or a organizational change, or some kind of layoffs or whatever you're doing, you know, you can communicate those in an email and a message and say, oh, here's our new strategy for the year. Here's our vision 2030. Here's what we're, you know, new changes this coming year. You know, those are, you know, I would say factual messages that can be communicated uh, in as a cogent and powerful a way as possible. Purpose is emotional. You're trying to get people to buy in. It's not just a left brain activity. It's more than that. So I found some of the best leaders talked about it in through stories, personal stories. You know, um, Indra Nui talked about her own childhood growing up in Chennai without water and why water conservation was so important to her. Or in the case of Lego's transformation, Jorn Vignutstrup decided to go back to the founder who was no longer alive, of course, and understand what was the founder's intention. And the founder was interested in intelligent play and saying, we need to channel that, that into our thinking. So you start to see how, you know, a lot of these leaders are trying to find ways to, uh, you know, what I, what I call saying, you don't want to just be a plumber, you need to be a poet. 
And that was not my saying, but Jim March, a very famous uh, Stanford academic, talked about poets and leaders as poets and plumbers. And I think that is the, the point I think I was trying to make over here. That, you know, as leaders, they need to be both poets and plumbers. Um, and that is kind of the part of the story. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about this idea of connecting organizational purpose with individual purpose, because you say that connecting organizational purpose with the individual's own personal purpose isn't easy. You might balk at allowing individuals to be themselves, worrying that you're ceding too much control and that performance will suffer. The paradox, though, is that by ceding control over individuals, you ultimately unlock individual performance. You obtain that high performance, not by compelling or incenting team members, but by firing up intrinsic motivation. And like I, you know, you and I were talking about my backstory and I told you I'd been fired from every job. And I can tell you that largely what I discovered uh, was something a mentor told me that if you mismatch somebody's talent with their environment, then inevitably you're going to get shitty performance. And we rarely instead of looking at maybe this person is in the wrong job, we either fire them or put them on a performance improvement plan to avoid a lawsuit. Uh, so how does this actually happen? How do you get, you know, how do you set people up to be intrinsically motivated to begin with? So look, that's a great question, uh, Shrini, you're asking is, So what we're trying to understand is, you know, there was a time when all of motivation was about job satisfaction. And job sat was about giving people a fair wage, giving them decent wages, decent job, well-trained, you know, and resource them to do their job right and maybe a bit of bonus to perform well. We then evolved in the 80s and 90s to engagement where people were like, okay, how engaged are you? And engagement came from being given some autonomy, made part of a team in a positive work culture, supportive boss, kind of like made you feel like you're learning and growing all the time. And that became engagement. I think we're at a third level now, which is about inspiration. And inspired workers, people who are getting inherent meaning out of what they're doing, where work is meaningful, are far more productive and far more intrinsically motivated. So a question people should be asking is, do I feel a sense of pride in what I do? Do I feel connected in what I do? Does my work give me meaning? Right? And, and I think is, some of us will say yes and some of us will say no. And for those of us who are saying no, we kind of compartmentalize our lives and then we call it work-life balance. And But those of us who do see more coherence in our life. And actually, I'll share with you, the head of HR at Microsoft, Kathleen Hogan, said once, you don't really work for Microsoft until Microsoft works for you. And how do we help people? Or I'll give you another one. I'll just wrote a case on coach Nick Saban. His whole thing is, how do you get players to show up and be their best version of themselves? How do you show up and be the best version of yourself? And I, I would like to submit that when you're inspired, we show up in the best version of ourselves. Wow. Well, Let's finish this up by talking about the you know, metrics aspect of this, uh, because you say that, uh, you know, the truth is that nobody gets a pass on short and long term final financial performance, whether they are striven to deliver profits for shareholders or not. And certainly strong shared value strategies don't mean leaders can take their eyes off the commercial logic. So how do you balance the two? Like, how do you not go too far in one direction? It's like, hey, you know, purpose driven and losing money every day. So going back to my original statement to you, Shrini, in the beginning, was people confuse purpose as social stuff. Yeah. Purpose is not social stuff. Having said that, purpose is long-term thinking. And because purpose is long-term thinking, and long-term thinking requires you to think about different stakeholders. So whenever, remember, now what's happened is there was a time when a leader could simply optimize their performance around one thing, which was 
profitability and possibly short-term profit. We then added long, short-term, medium-term, long-term profitability. And then that alone, time horizon alone complicated the lives of these leaders. Now we're saying it's not just that, it's also these other things. Now, I just like to submit that some of the leaders I talk to say that, you know, profit is a byproduct. It's a, not a goal in and of itself. It's an outcome that results from your pursuit of goals to pursue excellence in what you're doing. Even back to coach Nick Saban, you know, it's interesting. He's won seven national championships. He never, ever has talked about winning a championship to his players. <laughs> Yeah, I've read it's his book. It's never that. I've read his book and right? I remember that, yeah. And so you see that a lot of, even the late Jack Welch used to say, profit is a byproduct. It's not a goal. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, how do we, and now the problem for leaders today is that the goals are complicated and there are many of them. So you're thinking, okay, what do I decide? So what it starts, purpose starts to get you thinking of what are those multiplicity of goals, writing them down. You might not be able to come up with a precise weighting scheme saying, oh, 30% here, 70% there, 40%. But, you know, it gives you, a, again, a rudimentary framework of thinking about the inevitable trade-offs and choices that you have to make as a leader today who is trying to manage an organization for the long I think that is the crux of the whole issue. And that is true for us individually. If we individually are trying to say, okay, how do I allocate my time? My family, my athletic, my health, my economics, my friends, my whatever. How do I allocate my time? And having some clarity of intent or a purpose doesn't give you the answer, but at least gives you a way to navigate your way through those choices a bit better in a more intentional way. Well, let's finish this up. You say that for capitalism to evolve and make progress in addressing the greatest problems facing humanity, we need leaders and companies everywhere to embrace the purpose. Um, in Sonia, it's funny because as I finished putting my notes together for your book, I've been reading, I just finished reading another book called uh, The Geek Way, Rat The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results by Andrew McAfee. And like I was seeing overlaps in some of what you guys had said and also, you know, pieces that connected. Uh, and one of the things he talked about was sort of industrial era companies not being able to deal with incumbents simply because of the way that they operate. Uh, and I'm curious, like, where you see this as far as the future goes? Like, are there industrial era companies that resist this or will basically resist this to their own demise? So there are two, it's a great question, Srini. There are two related and also independent questions you're asking. Let me start first with the industrial companies unable to think. This is a perennial problem. I mean, I've been studying this separately in a separate project. Why did Kodak fail? Why did Sears fail? What happened to Motorola? What happened to BlackBerry? What happened to Blockbuster? You know, what happened to these companies? These were iconic organizations that defined the very industry. They created industry. I mean, Sears Roebuck invented retail. They invented store brands. They invented mail order. And what happened to these icons? And where did they get lost? So it's true. Many of them fall into a narcissistic self-worship success trap. They become so successful that they can't imagine reimagining themselves or what the late Andy Grove used to call only the paranoid survive. Right? How do you create that healthy paranoia in the organization? Um, and then there's a the question you're asking about purpose. Does purpose play a role in this? Now, if you look back at Microsoft again, we began with Microsoft, let me end with Microsoft. You know, Microsoft had a purpose under Bill Gates as it did under Bomber, but they had stagnated for almost 15 years and the, missed almost the entire tech revolution that had happened until then, till 2014. And so the question was, you could revive your strategy, you could revive your organization. But Satya's take was you needed to reconnect to our purpose. Now, when you reconnect to your purpose, he was saying like, let's not just get lost in the past. Let's not get nostalgic. We need to 
connect to our roots, but modernize them and look forward. So in in order to look forward, you got to look backwards first. Like where did we come from and where are we trying to go? So purpose gives you kind of a a, a, a mechanism to really look back at yourself. Where have we come from? Where do we want to go in the, in the short and long term? And the why question forces you to do that. So it's interesting. Purpose, past, future, transforming, refreshing. You know, it's, uh, and this is what Jörn Vignutstrup said to me. He said, if you want to transform, not just turn around a company, you need to find the essence. And then he says, just like finding out your purpose in life, it's not up to you, not up to management to decide that. It's not a rational choice. You don't decide what your calling is. You detect it. So it was about kind of reconnecting to your roots, but then modernizing that idea into the future. In their case, it was a discovery that the founder had come up with this idea of intelligent play. But what did that mean for the future of Lego? Not the past. And that's why purpose is such a powerful way to energize ourselves individually, but also energize an organization in moving it forward in a very crazy the world where the world is changing on us fast in nanoseconds. Wow. Well, um, I think that makes a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we Please. finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What is it that makes something unmistakable? It's a great question. I'll just say one thing on that is, what makes something unmistakable is when it's truly authentic, when it isn't grafted, when it isn't kind of a pretend, when it isn't posture. So I think real unmistakability is when you see something and you say, that makes sense. That is really connected and true to who that individual or thing is. And so that's what I think is the hallmark of unmistake. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, your work, and everything else that you're up to? Well, there's a couple of places. I have a website for the book where I have 25 podcast interviews I did with C After I finished the book, I did 25 CEO interviews from around the world. I went on and I continued my journey. And that's a podcast on a website called deeppurpose.net. It describes the book and also the podcast. And then my own website is ranjegulari.com. And also on LinkedIn, where I have uh, have a newsletter of sorts going. And I periodically will put out a story about a leader or about a concept that I am particularly fascinated by. So thank you so much, Rini. It's been really yeah. a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, really appreciated the questions. I can see you as a professor. I can say you did your homework. You really had read my book very carefully. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.